Welcome to Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast. Hello, my name is Chuck. I'll be your host. This is episode 34. This episode is brought to you by Arizona Soaring Incorporated, the nation's largest provider of professional glider training. Since 1969, they provided training from initial private through CFI Glider and entry level through Advanced Aerobatics. Open year-round, seven days a week. More information is available at azsoaring.com. Our guest today on the podcast was interested in aviation from an early age. He first soloed in a helicopter at age 20 while an Army ROTC cadet at the College of William & Mary. He then spent seven years in a variety of aviation-related roles on active duty in the Army and the Army National Guard, accumulating 800 flight hours in the OH-58 and the UH-1 aircraft. After a 23-year hiatus from a business career, he returned to flying by getting his private pilot glider add-on at Ridge Soaring in Julian, PA, in 2015. Since then, he has accumulated 750 glider hours, mainly in his private ship, a 1994 DG-800A self-launcher. He has been president of the Pittsburgh Soaring Association since 2016. His FAA certificate reads... Commercial Pilot Rotary and Glider Instrument Pilot Rotary and CFIG. Join us now as we hear David Hart's story on Soaring the Sky. David Hart, welcome to Soaring the Sky. Great to have you tonight. How are you? It's my pleasure. So happy to be here, Chuck. So you are flying in the Pittsburgh area. I live in Pittsburgh, but I fly where I can find the best lift uh, at a reasonable (laughs) uh, travel. Absolutely, yeah. So where are you soaring? Well, I would say probably most of my soaring has been in uh, in Pennsylvania and in West Virginia, uh, Virginia, up and down the Appalachian ridges or Appalachian ridges, depending on how you want to say that. Well, uh, but I've also up. flown out west, but but most of my time that's been more like a safari kind of thing. But my steady my steady go to is the ridges and the wave and the thermal flying from Williamsport. Pennsylvania down to boy as far as I had not that I've gotten there but as far as Nashville or uh, rather Knoxville Tennessee which is 500 miles and up and down those mountains it's kind of a playground for gliders in my opinion yeah, and one of the is. best soaring destinations in, on the planet in fact uh, location of, of several world records if I could back up a little bit when did all this get started for you as far as your aviation adventure well, for me, uh, I was interested at a young age, like four, in aviation. Uh, I was fortunate to fly on airplanes at that time. I think mainly large, like uh, commercial airliners, but at a young age. And so, looking out the window, you get the sense that you're flying, and it's kind of uh, you get it. And I was like, wow, that was great. And then around age, I would say seven. I got my first ride in a small airplane where I was you know, a little more intimately involved with seeing what the pilot was doing and, and it's a different feel, you know, it, it feels different in the air. And that was probably age seven. And I was, you know, enchanted by that. And to both, a both a small airplane, it was probably a, a, a Piper, but you know, maybe a four, a, a six seater and then uh, a helicopter at age seven that was doing a demo 
uh, going up and down to different airports. And I, I got the chance to get on it and uh, do a, I don't know, 10 minute flight. And boy, that was great. <laughs> I can still remember it very clearly. Yeah, helicopters are like a totally different experience. I know that's what it was for me when I got in a helicopter. So at a young age, that must have been pretty amazing. Sure. So, so though I you know, didn't do it every day, I certainly had an interest in aviation uh, from that age and to be a pilot, right? That was kind of the cool thing. Uh, so, that, so that was my early uh, interest, but I didn't become a, I didn't actually get a pilot's license until I was 21 years old, I think, uh, maybe 22, you know, 22 years old. Uh, and that was uh, a military, you know, flight, I guess, license. I got an FAA license at the same time, a commercial uh, helicopter instrument rating. Uh, so because that was uh, my military training, being a young lieutenant out of ROTC. So I, I picked a military career that would get me in a cockpit. That was kind of the reason I, I did military service uh, was an army helicopter pilot in the second u.s cavalry for four years in the 1980s uh got out of the service uh in 1989 and was in the guard for a couple more years still flying helicopters but then you know life got in the way and i stopped for the better part of 20 years and came back in actually more than 20 years and came back to soaring uh, specifically in 2015, I think that's right. And so I've been flying since then, soaring primarily or exclusively. What brought you f- from flying helicopters to soaring? Well, <laughs> helicopters all fine and good when someone else is paying for it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a very expensive thing to operate and kind of uh, inefficient if you really think about it. You know, it's a specialized thing. You know, if you don't need to hover, you don't need a helicopter. You know, it's a lot of fun and it's it's to fly it. And it's a different thing, kind of stick and rudder from. a. Uh, in fact, there is no rudder. But, you know, and in terms of uh, pilot manipulating controls, it's different than, than flying a sailplane uh, or, you know, or a power plane. So it was a bit of an adjustment for me uh, coming back to it after those many years. But the reason uh, I took up soaring also was that. This uh, Pennsylvania has done some tourism work, I guess. So from where I live in Pittsburgh, I would hear about the glider operations near State College, which is about a little over 100 miles. So that was pretty close. And when I you know, finally had the time and the, the wherewithal, I drove out there and took some, uh, you know, took my glider lessons and it went uh, pretty easily. And at the same time, this being around 2015, I got a hold of the Pittsburgh chapter, well, the Pittsburgh Soaring Association, which is the um, soaring club, local SSA-affiliated uh, soaring club. What were they flying when you started flying there? At Pittsburgh, um, they've had the same fleet pretty much since I've been there, which is a an L-23 uh, a Super Blanek uh, that is... Um, a G102 single-seater, 15-meter standard class, and a AC4 Russia, which is a little one-place, almost an ultralight glider. <laughs> uh, and then we have a least uh, 233, 
which we've leased from uh, uh, Shenandoah Valley, Valley Soaring in Pennsylvania, in uh, Virginia. They've been very kind, and that helped us out when the Blanick was in the shop, so that we still have a trainer to uh, you know conduct our our bread and butter, which is which is uh, flight training. Oh yeah, absolutely. Were you flying the 233 then when you started? No, I I, uh, I flew it with uh, Tom Knopf at Ridge Soaring, where I did all of my you know basic train basic flight training, primary glider training, and he has a couple of G10 threes, which are two-seater grobes, uh, which is a bit of a truck, in my opinion, of a glider. You know, it flies like a truck. That's where I did my primary training. And then I flew the club's Blanick. And I flew, then I flew the club's Grobe in terms of kind of my progression into single-seaters and the Russia. I flew both those gliders. And that gave me some experience uh, before I bought my own ship. And what did you purchase when you decided to go out and buy your own ship? Well, after an exhaustive analysis <laughs> that included a, a scoring algorithm, you know, for performance and price and, and uh, various other parameters, uh, I finally bought a DG800A self-launcher, 18 meters. So you don't have to worry about a tow plane then. You can go to the airport and fly when you want. I can go to the airport and fly when I want. That's right. When, when, it's, when it's running. I think motor gliders yeah. are notoriously finicky, uh, particularly the you know the motorized part, which is why um, you know as a cautionary thing, it's famous among motor glider pilots that you know motor, the reason motor pilot, motor glider pilots uh, kill themselves sometimes is is that they count too much on the uh, the iron thermal, and when the iron thermal doesn't work, uh, they're left without options. And so, you know, go into the trees or whatever they have to do because they don't leave themselves, uh, you know, a safe landing place at all times, like most reasonable glider pilots would do. Yeah, it makes sense. So how much time and fuel do you have? Like, if, let's say you launch and you're in the air. So what would you have left after a launch to maybe get yourself to some more altitudes so you could continue to fly? Well, uh, more than enough. There's uh, in the, D, the DG, which I think is you know fairly similar to other of that class of motor glider, uh, carries 22 liters of fuel in its main tank, and then there's a couple of removable wing tanks which, which contain another 10 liters each. So the airplane, the motor burns about 20 liters an hour. So on the main tank alone, you can run it for an hour, and that's a lot. Uh, the typical self-launch. In my experience, is anywhere between two and five minutes of motor running time, maybe 10, like at the extreme outside. Uh, so you don't run the motor very long on the average uh, launch and are left with, the, you know, all that fuel. You can run it for another hour. And since the thing climbs at eight knots with the motor running, an hour, uh, you know, gives you a, a pretty a lot of climbing you know, so to get you out of most uh, situations. If the motor lights. So on on a good day, then you're you're pretty much good to go. You could probably fly all day if you find some good thermals. And you could, in theory. I mean, my my personal uh, practice is to fly as a glider uh, once I've launched, and not to think of the motor as anything but a launching device, like a tow plane. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Now, not to say I haven't done motor like engine saves, uh, but they've always been around, you know, over a field usually an airfield, which, uh, you know, where I could land if it didn't light. 
Yeah, so you pretty much treat it like a glider. Just gets you in the air and then go, just like you would if you were towed up. That's right. So what has been one of your, I guess, most memorable flights in that glider for you so far? Wow, there have been a lot of them. Well, would you like to hear my most memorable flight in the east or in the west? How about you give me the east, and then, if you don't mind, give me one in the west, too. Okay, I don't mind. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, in the east, I would say, um, probably my biggest, you know, my most exciting flight was one where I think I went all the way from Lock Haven in the north to at least Mountain Grove in the south. So Lock Haven is about 30 miles, 20 miles short of Williamsport, which is the end of the ridge, the end of the, the you know, the primary ridge in the Appalachian uh, chain, the primary being the first one off the plateau that the wind hits first. And that's the ridge that extends its various mountains as you go north and south, but it is the first one off the plateau. So that's the same as the Knobblies down near Cumberland or New Creek Mountain or getting further south, uh, you know, South Fork Mountain, uh, North Fork Mountain, all the way down there. Uh, and then going up Tussie, Nittany, or not so much Nittany, but Bald Eagle Ridge, Dunning Mountain. They're not in order, but these are Buffalo Mountain. These are all the front ridge. And so uh, that's, a, that's a very interesting flight. I mean, the reason it's doable um, faster and further than you could ever go on a thermal flight is because of the ridge lift. Uh, when the when the wind is blowing perpendicular, so the ridges are are very reliable and very very strong left, and you can go super fast and cover a lot of ground. Now I didn't fly particularly fast this day, but others like Tom Knopf and and Carl Streetick and and you know the other heroes of uh, Appalachian soaring have uh, you know covered the ridge down and back in a single day, which is a thousand miles. That's 1,600 kilometers, right? Not 1,000 kilometers. Yeah. You know, doing 1,000 kilometers on the ridge is not that hard to do. Uh, truth be told, if you fly out anywhere like Ridge Soaring or Bedford, uh, even Cumberland, if you fly yeah. north, all you got to do is go up and back three times, and you have over 1,000 kilometers. Up being from Cumberland to, you know, Williamsport, and down being from Williamsport back, that's... Uh, I don't know how many kilometers, like 150 miles each way. You know, you do that three times and you're over a thousand kilometers. Now, uh, so that's, that's a fair, that's not my most memorable flight. The most memorable, memorable flight is you go from Lock Haven, uh, down to Columbia you know, or, or, or Williamsport in the North down to Cumberland. You catch the wave there or Ridge Sword of the Nobles, which I don't have the guts to do. But you catch the wave, and then you, you take the wave down to basically to Petersburg, West Virginia, where the ridges now are, are stronger again. And you can stay in the wave or get down on the ridge. And the high point of the whole Appalachian chain is right there, Spruce Knob, about 30 miles south of Petersburg, West Virginia. And, but from Spruce Knob is downhill pretty much all the way to Knoxville. And the first stop down that way is a place called mountain grove which is the end of the ridge so you can get all the way to mountain grove you know to petersburg on a continuous ridge flight but connecting that with the northern part is the exciting thing and there was one time i've been able to do it that i flew out of bedford got up in the wave this was march of probably two years ago flew out of okay. bedford got up in the wave made it across the wave all the way 
all the way to Spruce Knob, which is a good long ways, and then down to Mountain Grove, turned, came back, flew the ridge all the way back to Petersburg, which is exciting, especially around Snowy Mountain, which is kind of the crux. Then back into the wave, over to Cumberland, back on the ridge, up and down, and all the way to Williamsport and back. That was wow. a big flight. Yeah, so you're combining wave along with ridge to get that done. In that case, yes. I mean, if you're, if you're uh, Tom Knopf, <laughs> uh, who was my you know, uh, introduction to gliding, my you know, flight instructor, uh, told me that. I mean, others have, I think several others have ridge soared the knoblies, um, but you need to be uh, pretty uh, bold. I think it's a pretty bold strategy, um, one which uh, I'm not willing to take that risk. So I'll only do it if there's wave. Because there's a pretty big gap there that gets tricky. Yeah, pretty much from uh, from Cumberland and New Creek Mountain, which is south of Kaiser, if you know where that is. Yeah, right. Yeah. So New Creek Mountain is the one with the big windmills on it. And if you can get there, there's always left. But from Cumberland to New Creek Mountain is probably, like I said, you know, you can't. It's not one glide, right? You got to thermal across or or get wave across. And on the strong days, thermaling is a challenge because the thermals are going to be broken, you know, because it's blowing pretty good. So wave, I think, is a better bet. It's hit or miss. There's a guy, um, uh, Tango Eight, out of uh, New Hampshire, who's uh, ace pilot, and he's done that flight several times where he, I think, out of Mifflin, will get down to near Cumberland, get up in the way, fly it all the way across, you know, go all the way down to Mountain Grove and back. He's gone further. I think he's gone all the way to uh, all the way to Tazewell, Virginia. I think it is. It's pretty far. <laughs> you know, it's, it's well past uh, Covington. It's, it's another hundred miles past Mountain Grove. Oh wow! But, that, but that's still not all the way to Knoxville, right? You, you know, to get to Knoxville, you got to fly. I don't have my map out, so I can't name all the mountains. That's the part I haven't flown yet. But there are guys that fly out of Knoxville and they fly north. And for them, you know, they get to Covington. Uh, that's a pretty long flight. And Covington being, you know, as far as far south as I've gone, not quite. So my, you know, my ambit, you know, I just described my my best flight, which was uh, Williamsport to Mountain Grove. What I want to do is Williamsport all the way down to Tazewell, or even further, you know, all the way down to Knoxville and back, if possible. That's a big, you know, that's a big undertaking, and only a few people have ever done it. John Good has done it too, uh, as I mentioned, uh, Streetick and uh, Tom Knopf, and I think a couple others. How many hours would that be if you want to get a Oh, it's a good 12-hour flight. Yeah, wow. It depends if you're booking. I mean, you have to start at the crack of dawn someday in May or June, or May, yeah. most likely, April or May. Start at the crack of dawn. I think Brian, the guy who did it out of Petersburg, or from Petersburg, he had to land in the Milesburg Gap. If you know, if you know, he flew out of Ridge Soaring for this particular flight, and he flew all the way down to Tazewell, Virginia, and then uh, back and it got to be so late that on his last leg, he had to land out in the Milesburg Gap, which, which is just short of Ridge Soaring, um, rather oh, wow. than you know, fly after dark. <laughs> so close, right? <laughs> well, he still had his flight. I mean, the flight was what it was. It yeah, was pretty, it's still pretty awesome flight. Yeah, exactly. Pretty awesome. What was your best flight in the West? Well, um, I would say not, you know, not by the numbers in terms of distance. But kind of a dream flight of mine was uh, was the day I flew flew out of. Um, actually, I knew that uh, I put took my logbook out. So let me actually look at this flight. Yeah. Okay. Here we are. Uh, this was on uh, June 30th, 
2018 in Mon- out of Montrose, Colorado. Montrose is about, I don't know, 50 miles south of Grand Junction, so kind of the s- southwestern part of the state. Okay. And uh, Colorado is uh, amazing soaring, amazing. But not for the faint of heart, because the you know the mountains are are very high, <laughs> right, and they get in the way. <laughs> so you have to actually yeah. you know plan around the mountains when you're doing high thermal soaring in Colorado, which is unlike you know any place you know almost any other place you do thermal soaring. I don't know, maybe the Alps, but uh, Colorado is definitely big mountains, and so you know you think twice about crossing a range and so forth. Anyway. Um, at least for me, it's my first time there. And so it was uh, a learning experience. This is my first trip out West, by the way, this one in 2018, but this flight in Montrose was um, a, a group of us who had been flying in Parowan, uh, Utah, which is also amazing and, and highly recommended. A couple of us took off after the Parowan camp and we came back through Montrose as part of our little little safari so we launched out of montrose and what's nice about it about that particular area is there's very high mountains just just uh to the south uh the san juan mountains the town of telluride which is a spectacular place you know these amazing uh sheer mountains in this you know deep valley where the where the town is an old mining town and so it's very very scenic and there's amazing uh in every direction from montrose there is some interest interesting thing uh, to the south, there's this, uh, you know, the, the San Juans. To the north is the is the Black Canyon of the Gunnison, which is this amazing deep black canyon, <laughs> uh, which is, uh, you know, very dramatic to fly over. And it's on the final glide back to Montrose from the north. Uh, very easy to see it. And then there are further mountains to the north and to the, to the east, uh, very tall mountains. Montrose is on the west side of the continental divide so it's going uphill when you go east from there and if you go west then you go in the canyon lands of utah moab that area so in every direction from from montrose there's you know beautiful scenic things and this was my first and only flight there um i was having some difficulty with my motor <laughs> in the dg800 which was a uh, loosening drive belt uh, this drive belt was getting worn, and it was there's slack in it between the motor and the propeller, and that's something that caused vibration. It's really not something you want to overdo. Have the drive belt break, say that could be not catastrophic, but highly inconvenient uh, in flight. You, know, you might overspeed your motor. Anyway, I didn't want to run the motor too much. I launched. I shut the motor down out of Montrose at a fairly low altitude. Uh, hunted and hunted for thermal. Couldn't find it. Couldn't find it. Uh, was gliding back to Montrose, uh, decided to light the motor again, and it started the second time, climbed out, found another thermal, shut the motor down. This time it took, and you know, took that thermal up pretty high and went north, cruising north towards Grand Junction. It was beautiful, high altitude, clouds, it was probably noon, and then uh, uh, up towards Grand Junction, took a right turn uh, towards uh, Aspen, that area, and flew in that direction, these gorgeous mountains. There's something called Grand Mesa there. Um, very scenic. Uh, the clouds are spectacular. Flew back south to Montrose over the Black Canyon. Uh, had a low save right near the city, uh, but, but scratched it up. And there was a, there's a ridge, very prominent ridge, uh, just to the east of Montrose. You see it from the city. It's very tall, towering uh, uh, cliffs. I don't know. Jumps up several thousand feet. 
from the city or the town of Montrose. Headed over there, there were clear markers of lift on the face of that. The prevailing westerly wind was hitting that that west west facing mountain and causing uh, very strong thermals, especially in the afternoon when the sun was hitting it. It was marked by by you know uh, uh, cumulus clouds above it, so it was clearly going to be working, and you could see it from miles off. And so uh, I did a glide to that. Sure enough, the thermal hit like super strong, amazing, you know, 15 knots, some crazy thing for minutes wow. and i jumped up uh 10,000 feet or something like that you know up to the height of 8,000 18,000 to the limit and then took a nice cruise from Mont- you know from basically Montrose south over the San Juans to Ure to Telluride and then from there west over the uh, still over the mountains like out towards the Utah desert amazing just beautiful uh, particularly interesting to me uh, because I had driven through that very area the year before you know, on vacation and kind of taken my time. I'd seen the mountains and, and the towns, all these different towns, and stopped at the Black Canyon and all of that stuff and, and said to myself the year before, now, wouldn't it be nice to come back and soar these mountains? You know, I can see how that would be great over there and so forth. And sure enough, the next year I was able to come back and make it happen and fly that kind of imaginary flight that I'd had the year before. And that's why that was the most satisfying thing, because it was not only a beautiful place, but it was like a dream realized to have that flight. Yeah, you got to see it from both point of views, a drive and then up above everything. Wow, that, that must have been crazy. Yeah, it was really, uh, it, you know, it asked, it's, it's funny, I had a friend who asked me who um, I took him flying and he said, you know, do you think things look different from the air? That is, you know, is, is the ground, is the earth different when you're flying? As opposed to when you're on the ground, you have a new sense of what the world really is when you're flying as opposed to when you're, you know, stuck down in the, on the, in the mud. <laughs> and yeah. uh, I think that I think that, you know, the earth is it is what it is. That is, it doesn't change based on your observation of it necessarily. But I think you have a different appreciation for what there is when you see it from an, from an altitude, you know, particularly, you know, how kind of the, how the land lays down. I think when you're in the air, uh, the land seems flatter than it does when you're on the ground. That you know, when you're on the ground, you can see elevation much better. That is, you know, changes like a hill. You know, you can climb a hill. You know, you, you know, you can feel it from the air. Once you get above a certain altitude, you can't really see that hill. So I think it's a little different. Certainly, I like to look at it from the air. <laughs> yeah. And, it seems like everything slows down for me, too. Obviously, I mean, the traffic below, if you want over an interstate, the traffic slows down. Everything just slows down. And I don't know, it just a peace kind of comes over you. And that's just kind of what I feel when I'm in the air. Yeah. Cl- clouds add to the effect, especially like little wispy ones that you can fly through. Yeah. Yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think it's nice to, to, you know, having not that I don't like a blue day now and then. But, uh, you know, clouds add to the add to the appeal. So that's some pretty amazing flights and getting the, you know, the difference between the east and the west. I've only flown here in the east, but I've I've heard so many amazing stories from the west, too. It's, I can't wait to get out there and do some flying, too. And just some beautiful country. I mean, beautiful country here, too. It's just different out there. And I know a lot of people have told me that, of course, the cloud bases are higher. The thermals are stronger. The mountains are bigger. Everything's just, you know, it's the West, so everything's bigger. <laughs> I highly recommend it. Highly recommend it. 
And uh, you just have to be mindful and you can do it safely. Did you fly with some other people before you took on the task yourself? What do you mean? As far as like when you went out west, did you fly with anyone else before you flew it by yourself? No, I took my my own ship out and I flew it. Uh, you know, I self launched. You know, the altitude is the is the main issue that you have out west as as, as far as the safety of flight. I would say uh, once you're up in the air, it's no different. You, it's just when you're six thousand feet high. Uh, the density altitude uh, keeps you, uh, you know, just uh, you don't lift as well. Right. Yeah. Right. So you need a longer ground run, basically. That's the only way you that's the only thing you notice. You don't notice it when you land. I don't think yeah. so. So uh, as far as your future goes, David, do you do you have any contest soaring in sight or what, what are your goals in the glider? Well, I just uh, just got my CFIG rating uh, about a month ago. Congratulations. So I, I think there will be more instruction in my future. Uh, we I definitely say, need more instructor. <laughs> right. Uh, so I'm, I'm one of the, uh, the two staff uh, instructors at the Pittsburgh Soaring Association. Oh, very cool. Now, but in addition, uh, right now, I suppose I have short-term and then uh, medium-term soaring goals. I'm pretty active on the OLC, so when I fly... I fly um, OLC type flights that is you know, six legs. So a six leg flight, you know, in that kind of format last couple years, at least last year, I was the region. I was like OLC champion in a couple regions in the I think region four and region two, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, very cool. So I'll try to keep that up. And that just means getting enough flights in. You have to get six flights, basically. Uh, six, you know, uh, well, that's, that's how it's scored. You get six, they take the top six flights. You can fly more than that. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing I, I hope to keep that up. We'll see. Sometimes life gets in the way. Yeah. Yeah. True. Uh, I, I just kind of used the OLC as a kind of a diary for me cause I'm nowhere near uh, getting any kind of points to win any regions, but uh, maybe someday. <laughs> Well, I would I would say that that my success there is not due to any great skill on my part. Uh, any any competent glider pilot could do it, but rather than it's it's been the object of some focus for me, and with the self launcher, I'm able to fly out of sights that other places other other pilots can't, and so that makes the whole thing easier. That I can, you know, ridge soaring shuts down in in uh, I don't know December January in February, but I could still fly those months, for instance. There are uh, several record opportunities, I think, state record opportunities. I don't think I could probably compete for a national record at this point, particularly not with my glider, which is in the open class. You know, by no means the most uh, you know, powerful of open class gliders in certain states. And I wrote an article about this for the SSA magazine. Uh, there are state records that haven't been that are you know achievable. And yeah. so there are a few state records I'd like to do, probably I don't know, West Virginia. I don't think I could do a Pennsylvania record. Those have all been pretty much taken. Virginia, West Virginia, either one of those could probably set some records. So that may be something I do or at least think about. As far as contests, you know, I'll tell you the thing about contests in my mind. I love contests and the people who fly them and win them are highly skilled and amazing pilots. And um, they, they, you know, can fly circles around me any day of the week. 
and I won't name them, but they're the ones that win the contests. <laughs> Not that I don't hope to achieve that. I loved going to contests and I loved competing with those guys and learning from them and seeing what they do. And particularly around how do you fly in weak conditions or in any conditions, but particularly weak conditions. And how do you maximize the, the lift that's given to you and you know, make the most of lift lines and that kind of thing? And be efficient, right? Turn as little as possible. Thermal as little as possible. That's how you achieve the best speeds. And so that kind of flying is super cool. And so I, lo- I do like contests. I would, t- I would tell you that the thing about contests that disturbs me, not, you know, well, it's just that in contests, they'll fly no matter what the weather is. That is, it could be a strong day, could be a relatively weak day. If you can get up and stay up in the air, they'll at least put it, you know, they'll, they'll launch you. Yeah. And send you out on task. And sometimes those are, you know, that can be a carnage, right? Everybody lands out, which is not, you know, necessarily bad, but, you know, it's inconvenient. <laughs> and uh, yeah. landing out pretty much ruins your contest. That is anybody who doesn't land out or, gets, you know, who manages to get around or get part of the course without landing out is going to yeah. have a big advantage. And, you know, usually an unsurmountable advantage in a contest. It's hard to land out ever and make the podium. So, but that's all fine, and I'll do more contests. I haven't done many this year. A couple years ago, I did, I don't know, like seven or eight. But the th- the the thing that I um, wanted to come back to there, that for the um, for someone who doesn't fly every day, I think a good safety uh, rule of thumb, at least one that I try to keep to, is that I try to fly when the weather is the strongest. Right? I want to fly only in the strongest days. Okay. And then I want to fly every one of them. <laughs> so yeah, uh, right. th- that's my strategy. <laughs> and then it's not a matter. There's never any risk of landing out. There's never any risk of, you know, having a weak day. You have the, the chance of really doing something safely, usually, right? Because you are you have reliable lift on a strong day. Yeah. And that was actually my next question I was going to ask you is any advice you had for other pilots and or even obviously student pilots? How to be a safer pilot, and that's some that's some good advice. Do you have anything to add to that? Ah, uh, yes. My my only my other advice to every aspiring p- glider pilot is um, Tom Knopf and others have done analysis of accidents, uh, glider accidents. The SSA does it as well, and you can see what kills people uh, pretty easily. But you can also see you know, accidents that don't kill people. There's a very useful accident website i think it's called the aircraft accident of the day on facebook you should check it out and every day you know anytime anything crashes you see about it on facebook so it's pretty cool and they also do anniversaries of major crashes but the point being you asked me about safety and i think you can't really speak you know accurately about safety without analyzing what causes accidents and you have to have an attitude of you know being endlessly curious about accidents and about what causes them and read the accident reports and think about that in in relation to your own flying and have you ever put yourself in a situation like that i think every pilot should do that and it's the best way to become safety aware and safety conscious so my advice to a glider pilot a solo student say would be keep your energy up when you're anywhere near the ground, <laughs> um, your kinetic energy, right? Uh, when you're anywhere within hundred feet of the ground or even 500 feet of the ground or even a thousand feet of the ground, uh, keep your energy up. 
because most pilots that are killed and that are killed in glider accidents are killed in stall spins at a low altitude, which comes from flying too slowly close to the ground and having a stall that you can't re- don't have the altitude to recover from. And that's what, you know, the airplane pancakes into the ground. So that's what kills pilots. And to avoid that, you keep your energy up. It's better to land in the trees with little energy than it is to pancake into the ground. Right. Yeah, so, absolutely. right. So if you have a choice, <laughs> um, you know, to, to, uh, sustain your flight, I mean, you've got to be very mindful of keeping your energy up. So that's just the, that's my only advice. That's some great advice. I, I greatly appreciate that. And it's definitely a good idea to keep in mind, you know, like they say, too low, too slow. So keep that energy up. You don't have to worry about that. And we definitely can learn from all the accidents. You know, it's horrible when someone loses their life to an aviation accident. But if we can take some good out of it and learn from it and save some other lives, then something good came out of it. Amen. David, thank you for joining me tonight. It's it's been very, very, uh, you had some very cool stories, Uh, especially the the West. I I enjoy hearing stories about the East, too, but the West seems like, uh, yeah, I I have to get out there for sure. And if you go West, uh, this year I went to Moriarty, New Mexico, and it was killer. And particularly the thing that not only is it amazing weather and and terrain and just a beautiful place to fly, super strong weather, but the facility itself, Moriarty Airport, is uniquely friendly to glider pilots with a a seven-day-a-week commercial operation uh, providing tows, maintenance facilities, at least three different glider mechanics. Uh, It's the best facilities of this type that I've seen anywhere in the United States in terms of uh, supporting a glider operation. A commercial glider operation. So in season, I think that soaring can't be beat. And if you want to go, like, stick your toe in the water, Moriarty is a great place to go. Uh, very cool. I have quite a few places to check out. Uh, California, New Mexico, Utah. Yeah, there's there's some good areas I've heard some great stories from. Well, David, thanks again. I appreciate you taking your time to be on the podcast. Thank you, Chuck. And thank you for joining us for another great guest here on Soaring the Sky. If you haven't checked out the other episodes on Soaring the Sky, you can do so at SoaringTheSky.com. There's also pictures of our guest on there. And while you're online, don't forget to check out the SSA, SSA.org. Lots of great information, even a place where you can find out where you can take your first glider ride, as well as webinars and lots of other great information there at SSA.org. If you're on social media, Instagram, you can find us soaring the sky podcast you can also find us on facebook soaring the sky podcast if you're a pilot and you have some stories you'd like to share with us love to hear from you that's chuck at soaring the sky.com sit down and talk to you here on the podcast if you just want to say hi let me know where you're listening from where you're enjoying the podcast also love to hear from you chuck at soaring the sky.com i hope you join us back here next week on soaring the skies